1: is Sarah with Circle, and today I'm so excited to explore a really, really interesting topic with Kristen Malone. And Kristen is a board-certified nurse, midwife, medical strategist, expert, a published author, and a mother of four. She grew up in Newport Beach, California, and fell in love with, and then married, an adventurous, fun-loving New Yorker. She's now settled in New Jersey, and her expertise lies in leading medical business development, strategic planning, organizational planning, and medical practice transformation. As a midwife, she began she began her strategy and business development work with several out-of-network OBGYN practices, but she's since grown into the field of plastics and aesthetics. Kristen's been called a visionary when it comes to medicine as a business, and her strengths lie in the growth and the development of best medical practices, teams, and bottom lines. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm really
1: excited to explore this topic with you. It's not something that um, I've ever covered before on the podcast. And for the listeners that are mamas and doulas, I think you'll find this conversation really interesting because I feel like um, a better understanding of how the birth industry works and how our providers are, you know, behind the scenes, the insurance, the, all the money and all the, how the industry works, better understanding, standing, gives us more options and
0: better choices. Uh, we can make better choices for ourselves. Absolutely, and it's it's so interesting because when we think about birth, birth for so many of us is really a calling and a vocation and a passion, and we don't always go into the birth field with the intention to make money. But then when we get into it, we realize that we still want to eat and pay our mortgages or rents. So it's a part of it that um, sometimes we kind of want to like shut the door on and pretend it doesn't exist, but then it just kind of piles up and gets the best of us. And there's a way where um, all types of birth workers, doulas, midwives, baby massagers, uh, lactation consultants can really benefit from just kind of like looking at um, this aspect of it that is a business and um, kind of like applying little bits and pieces of it. And um, it's okay to kind of think about like, I really love what I do, and I really love my job, and I really have this passion. But I still want to make money at the same time. Like both are okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Okay. So, how did you get your start in this birth industry world crazy thing? (laughs) Oh, a long time ago, I was, I actually was, I went to, I wanted to be an archaeologist and I went to UC Berkeley in California (laughs) and I took my first archaeology class and realized how boring it was actually. I was just like totally overwhelmed and lost because I was so convinced for so long. I think I maybe watched one too many Indiana Jones movies and that I wanted to be an archaeologist. And so I kind of quickly had to change majors and I got into psychology and I was like, well, I don't want to work with adults because adults... They, there's all these things that have happened to them that, the, that have kind of like the layers and layers and layers you have to dig so deep. So I'm like, let me work with adolescents. And I'm like, oh, they've had so many layers, even as adolescents. I'm like, let me work with kids. And then when I really just kind of got down to it, I'm, I really felt like it's really about birth. It's really about setting the family up well oh, I love it. with the birth to kind of, to thwart off, um, so many things. And I think that aspect of who I am kind of carried over into what I do now, which is, um, you know, I do a lot of strategy and a lot of development for um, medicine as a business. And it's because I'm very proactive. I'm not retroactive. So I like to see what's coming and try to anticipate twists and turns before they actually happen.
1: Mm, I love it. I've said, you know, you fix birth and you fix world hunger, you fix all the problems because, they all really stem at birth, all the traumas,
0: um, right? Absolutely, we can
1: you know get mama and baby connected and the family whole at the beginning, and you can prevent a lot of hard stuff.
0: Yeah, and I've been doing birth for birth work for seventeen years, and I've just really seen now. I can look back the the first babies I've delivered are now adults, and to still have some of those relationships with some of those clients, and to see like where they are and who they were and how when the baby is born, the mother is born also like how yes. that really is so powerful and such a big, um, it's cool to watch it come to fruition when you when your career spans for, for so long. When the baby is born, so
1: is the mother. That's, I love that. I love that so much. Okay. So what do you mean by birth
0: as a business? You've already said that a couple of times, but what does that mean? Like exactly. Well, so, I mean, if you think back to what are the oldest professions, you know, people, well, think of midwives, <laughs> I mean, they think of other things too, but yes. <laughs> midwifery and midwives was probably, probably came first. If you think about chicken or egg, I, I, I think mid, you know, the, people had to be born first. Um, and so there was always some way that usually there was some way that these women were cared for and were compensated for their work. Um, m- women, you know, midwives were traditionally women when we're talking about thousands and thousands of years ago. Right. And, um, and it just makes sense that if you're going to devote your life to becoming an expert in a field just like if you're going to devote your life to being an astronaut or to being a scientist or to building um, a sports car that you you get paid for that and maybe the it's the cart is you're putting the cart before the horse like maybe you're not thinking about the payment first you're thinking about the work first and the passion first but that's kind of what i mean is like medicine, medicine as a business and, and even birth as a business. And and there was that movie that Ricky like did the business of being born. Mm. And I think that it kind of got a negative spin about, um, because I think the business of being born could be a positive thing, especially when it comes to birth workers.
1: I love that spin. And you bring up an excellent point. So when did it stop being a business? When did it stop being an occupation and start being what it is now? Because part of the problem is the money is so disconnected from the actual business. Like very few people are paying their OBs directly or their midwives directly because insurance is involved. So like, talk to me about how, when did that all started and what has has it done to the practice, to the, um, to the profession itself?
0: Yeah. So the, I mean, just in the two decades that I've been been, that I've been doing it. I have worked in both, um, for fee for services. So I've worked in cash paying as a cash paying mid, you know, where we didn't take any insurance. I've worked where, um, we worked with women who had out of network benefits, meaning that, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people kind of, and women kind of understand the concept of my insurance is I'm in network with this, with this doctor, or I'm out of network with that doctor provider. um, You know, if I'm out of network, I have to maybe pay a little bit more, which isn't always necessarily true. Um, And then I've also worked in an in network practice where we accepted all insurances. And so, just in the last two decades, I've just seen a dramatic drop in the reimbursement of um, what physicians and OBs are paid um, in terms of their compensation for birth. And, um, you know, more than like a 200% drop. Wow. And I think that that's what's now, what we're seeing now is we're seeing more of these factory practices where women go in and they're just seeing are one as a number because the only way that physicians can maintain their lifestyle and, and providers can maintain their lifestyle and can maintain, um, you know, not even necessarily with their peers, um, radiologists and anesthesiologists and oncologists, but just with their peers, like pediatricians and uh, dermatologists, other other types of doctors who do um in-office work, they have to have twice, three times, four times the volume that they had even just five, 10 years ago.
1: Wow. So they're turning their practices into factories just so they can pay. I mean, the amount practice alone and malpractice insurance alone for some of these doctors is more than some people make in a year. So <laughs> So they've got all these costs, but um, they're being paid less and less by the insurance companies. So they've got to just
0: line them up. Yeah. And so it's, I, you know, I think sometimes physicians and, and midwives too, because you see this in midwifery practice in midwifery practices also, where it'll be a group of 15 midwives. And how can you really meet 15 people in a pregnancy? You only no. have 12 visits. Nope. So, um, and the same with physician practices that are that large, or they have these separate groups where they'll have the group of physicians, seven or eight physicians that see you in the office. And then they have a group of seven or eight physicians that do all the deliveries. And it's a very disjointed practice, but it's, and sometimes physicians and midwives are blamed for that, but it's really that my perception is that insurance has really, especially in network reimbursement rates has really pigeonholed physicians and midwives into these types of practices and is leaving women with no choices, minimal choices. Well, I want to talk about the reimbursement amount, but I also want to ask a, a, a little side question
1: here. Well, m- more like a comment. I've noticed a lot of people will, you said people don't like that. They, they think that's really disjointed and they want a, pra- a practitioner that sees them through the whole process. And I'll see a lot of midwives start their careers and say, I'm, I'm only going to see, I'm going to see this, the woman through her entire pregnancy, all the prenatals, and then I'm going to be at her birth but then the reality sets in of the on-call life and the lifestyle of being of being the only provider in your practice and then sometimes she just she pairs with another midwife and then the taste of that freedom that she can get by not having to be on call every minute of every second of every day of every then then they bring on more and more midwives and then soon they're in a group practice again and it's just the clients keep asking <laughs> for a single provider but it's just not feasible. Like the on-call
0: life is really hard. Plus then you don't get paid very much. Right. Right. So it's possible that the single provider, um, that single provider should be available, but then there should, there should be an understanding, I think of the reimbursement for that type of practice. So yeah, I think that it's, that's really kind of what it is and, and a total side note, but like in, in other practices that I've worked with, where they have the similar idea that what you're talking about, Um, where they have three midwives and then they add on two more and now they have five and then they get to eight. You know, there, there are other things that groups can do. They can do pods or they can do co-sharing or or colors. You know, they can have like red team, green team, blue team, Mm. where, you know, you're in a group where you see um, a, a group of four and you know that this group of four is your group of four, even though, um, Maybe you have an emergency. The baby's not moving. you're twenty eight weeks. you have to go to the office and you end up seeing the blue team because that's who's there that day. but you're your your core for midwives. Well, that's or a good idea, more right. So there's there are these ideas that um, you know when you start to kind of look at medicine as a business and you can start to pull from other silos, like, what are they doing in dermatology? What do they do in restaurants? What do they do in hotel management? What do they do in all these other fields? It can really be applied and make a better experience for, for clients and for the providers. Also,
1: you also said medicine as a business, and you kind of made a a motion with your hand that made me think, yeah, why do we not accept birth as a business? We accept dermatology. We expect, we, we expect Plastic surgery to be treated like a business. I mean, they even have billboards, right, and referral bonuses. And yeah, we absolutely. All and things, dentistry it, and, and dentistry for sure. Yeah. But then, when it comes to like heart surgery or birth,
0: we expect our providers to just be there, the altruistic. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or wholly altruistic. I mean, I think altruism is part of it, but oh, for maybe sure. not the whole thing. Um, and so there's, but I think that um, that's. So then I think that there is a a time and a place for the single provider group, Um, but then women have to think about too, like, you know, do you want to put all your eggs in this one basket, like that movie Knocked Up, you know, I promise I'm going to be there at your birth, and then that's the day that her son's graduating from college and she's not there, or that's the day that the midwife is, um, you know, it's her um, somebody's sick in her family or she gets and sick herself. Right. Yeah. Right. Or she, or the other thing that I always tell. Women, because I did solo, I I did solo practice for a long time. um, Is that you know when I finally took on a partner? Is that like if I've been up for three days in a row, you don't want me at your birth? (laughs) I've seen midwives
1: act, you know, be at birth where they've just come off another birth, and I'm like, wow, you should not be here. You need to be at home. Exactly, exactly. So,
0: and then it's kind of like I've always learned, and this is something that took me a while to learn in my own practice, is that when women are kind of presented with the facts up front they are much more accepting of like what the reality is so if they really want me to be at their birth but then i say okay i'm in a group with these two other women or this this you know mm-hmm. these two other people um and i'm going to do everything that i can but you need to make sure that you meet these two other people and you're comfortable yeah. with them. And yeah. it, and especially at the first visit, if that conversation is kind of happening, then um, I, I found that setting all of the kind of the expectations, sometimes even with the first phone call before they even come into the office or even have their first visit um, really helped to kind of, um, you know, Women, were, women are usually generally very understanding, I found. Yeah, you know? set expectations. Well, you have to look at why are they demanding
1: or why do they think they want that in the first place? And a lot of times it's because they've had a traumatic experience with a provider before, either in birth or somewhere else, and they feel like the only
0: way they can be seen and heard is if they get one provider. But- Absolutely. So you bring up this other really phenomenal point that struck me some, some many years ago when women were like, I want you, I have to have you, I have to have this person or or any other colleague or any other friend of mine. And what it really, what it, what it really came down to was women wanted a specific outcome. So, and every, and sometimes identifying and helping, and now the group that I work, I, you know, now I work in a group, And I'm doing deliveries as part of a group, and they can get me or they can get any of my partners, and kind of identifying a woman's expected outcomes at the beginning of the pregnancy. Because sometimes women would come to me because I'm a midwife, and they're like, Well, I want to have a vaginal delivery, and I think that you're going to support me in a vaginal delivery. And it's like, Aha, okay. So you the outcome you want by having me at your birth is you want a vaginal delivery. Okay. Let me get you comfortable with why my partners are also going to support you in having a vaginal delivery or having a low intervention birth or no intervention birth or whatever type of birth outcome they were actually looking for. So it's kind of detaching myself. Like it's not really me they're coming for. They're really coming for a specific outcome. And that just opened up so many doors for my practice And so many, um, it helped so much to kind of make it okay for everybody, make it okay for me to have a life and to still do what I love and made it okay for the patients and for their, you know, for our clients and their experience as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. So back to, (laughs) that was some great sidetracking, but back to the
1: um, in-network, out of network birth as a business, what is happening to reimbursements, Like, I know this is going to be different everywhere, but could you get kind of give us an idea of like what's happened in the last? You said twenty years of as you've been watching these these trends, what's happening to the money? Yeah,
0: so um, you know the the amount of so providers are reimbursed for pregnancy in two ways. So we're, they're either reimbursed for the actual delivery itself, um, which is just so in medicine we have these things called CPT codes. And we also have diagnosis codes. So if you've ever gotten an out-of-network bill or you've ever gotten something called an EOB, an explanation of benefits. So if you have Oxford or United Healthcare, Aetna, they'll often send you something in the mail that says, this is not a bill at the top. And then it'll explain like, okay, on this date, you went in, you know, on february 18th you went in and you had this service you had your blood drawn so it'll say venipuncture and then it'll have a cpt code next to it and then it'll say you had a urine out maybe you left a urine sample you had a urinalysis done and there'll be another cpt code next to it and you had a visit you had a 15-minute visit with your midwife and there'll be a cpt code next to it and then there's also diagnosis codes and that's what you kind of look at when you're looking at your explanation of benefits um and so For birth, there's one CPT code for the actual birth. So vaginal delivery has a CPT code. C-section has a CPT code. VBAC has a CPT code. And then there's another code for what's called global care. So every single visit you have in your whole pregnancy is all lumped into one sum. And it's done on purpose like that because they don't want physicians and midwives to say, well, Sarah, you have to come in every single Tuesday and they're just going to rack up your bill. You know, we've all heard about, you know, different types of practitioners who have done, you know, you know, we've heard about different, like, oh, chiropractors or dentists. I mean, not to throw anyone under the bus, but, you know, you've had a, heard a story about a friend who went somewhere and it's like, well, you have to come in three times a week. And so they, they made this global Fee schedule to kind of protect patients from that. So when the doctor or the midwife tells you to come in, they actually really need you to come in. It's actually really for your health, your safety, your well-being, because the doctor, or midwife is getting paid whether you have eight visits or whether you have 15 visits. Mm. So now that's working against women because if women now need, so sometimes women need to come in more than they. Than the twelve visits that they're supposed to standardly have under this global charge, and they have um, round ligament pain, and they need they want to get it checked out, or they have um, a urinary tract infection, and they want to come and get it checked out, and they're kind of getting pushed away by their provider staff because the provider isn't going to make any more money if they come in more or not because it's built yeah. under this global this global charge. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Is it
0: true that OBs make more for a C-section than they do for a vaginal delivery? So in some states that's true. And under the Medicaid reimbursement rate, it is the it is reimbursed more. So under like the federal Medicaid reimbursement, they do make more money for a C-section. So do you think that's contributing to more unnecessary C-sections? I think that the issue with the C second C-section epidemic is multifactorial. I think that there are so many factors. I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast on like why the C-section epidemic is here. And I think that this is a tiny little sliver of the issue. Um, I don't think that physicians are necessarily thinking about reimbursement because of all the physicians that I've worked with, a lot of them don't know that, (laughs) believe it or not
1: well, we know it as, uh, you know, it goes out in the birth community. Don't let him give you a C-section. He's only doing it so he can make some more money. Like I've heard that kajillions of times.
0: Yeah. But I think like, I think most people who go into birth, even OBs do it because it's a passion and a calling and something inside of them wants women to have the birth experience that they want. I I do, maybe it's just because they're my colleagues, but I really do believe Mm -hmm. that about most OBs that they really are working on the side of the patient. Well,
1: even if the reimbursement is the same, if they see a labor going super, super long, they'll get the paid the same amount, whether they're there for the, the patient for 36 hours or there and de- for 12 and decide to do a C-section. So there's also that motivation, right?
0: Right. So hundred. that's definitely a hundred percent true. And and there have been a lot of um, rules and regulations that come down now from JCO, the joint, um, JCO stands for the the healthcare administration. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, there's a lot of um, rules and regulations now about when you can actually perform a C-section. And so many hospitals, um, because of what happened with um, what happened with Obamacare, the reimbursement was actually changed based on C-section rates and episiotomy rates, and there were different. Um, they're different markers, and one of them is something called the NTSVD c section rate. So, the nulliparous, term singleton vertex woman and her c section rates is something that's incredibly highly regulated now throughout the entire US. So, it's basically there when a
1: woman comes in, baby's in perfect position, full term, then then they really discourage the c-sections. Right. And, and
0: null at risk. So meaning it's her first, it's her first baby. Oh, good, good, good. And so, that's something Obama, Obamacare changed, huh? Right. So he, he, Obamacare put that in motion and that it has carried over and we still have it to this day. And it's a metric that is incredibly tracked in every single hospital, probably pretty heavily for the last, I would say maybe since 2016. So, so, um, most hospitals are working quite fervently to reduce this NTSVD C-section rate.
1: Ah, okay. Because, um, so, so why are they working? It's because it's tracked and how they get penalized
0: or how they get paid, yes, how they get paid. Their reimbursement rates are affected based uh, on this NTVSD rate. So, If
1: they have too high of a C-section rate, then they're, well, what about hospitals that are
0: typically higher risk hospitals? And- well, that's, you're, you're risking out because it's the nulliparous, oh, the right, first yeah. time term makes- head right. down singleton. Yeah. So if you are in an area, you know, I, I practice in an area where it's, um you know, it's a major metropolitan area and we have a level three NICU. And so a lot of people will come to us that have exactly abnormal placentation, you know, abnormal placentas, and they'll have triplets and twins and a lot of complications and high-risk issues. And so those, those births don't actually go into this, this tally, which is really what is, you know, what, what it was, we're trying to reduce as a group, as a society with, that includes physicians and administrators alike. Got it.
1: Got it. Cool. Awesome. Okay. So, um, back to the reimbursement rate. So it used to be X and now it's half of X or what's it doing?
0: I mean, every year it goes down. So why are um, they doing that? So we have inflation and, and you know, this year we had quite a significant amount of inflation and every year it's going down. And I think it they're doing that because these are publicly traded companies that, you know, that have to, um, you know, satisfy their shareholders basically. And so they have to continue to grow and generate revenue. So how are they gonna do that? One of the major ways is that they're gonna take money away from the people who are actually distributing care. I mean, they get rid of, they try to get rid of as, you know, they're trying to automate things. They're, they're doing other things too. I don't want to just say that they're just taking all the money from the physicians, but that's a big part of it for sure.
1: Okay. I want to swing to the other side of the pendulum then. Um, what, why aren't more OBs hospitals private and only take cash pay? I mean, there's home birth midwives that pretty much that's what they do. There's some home birth midwives that can take insurance, but it's pretty rare. Why don't more OBs just say, you know what? done with the system. My client can afford me if they want me and go off all networks and just to cash pay.
0: What what is the actual cost of a delivery? So that is a phenomenal question. And one that I think is, again, has a lot of different answers. I think that a lot of physicians and midwives don't exactly know how to do that. And I think that they're, um, I think that they're sometimes afraid to make the transition and afraid to make the jump to cash pay because you can't just like open up shop you graduate residency and then you open up shop and you're like okay cash pay like come come to me and we'll just start doing deliveries you have to like build a name for yourself build a reputation get reviews online get a following have raving fans and then you would make the leap and so i i think and this is something that we can you know get into further if you want to too is that making the transition from in-network doctor or midwife to out-of-network doctor or midwife to ultimately cash pay is really the transition that I think makes a lot of sense.
1: We expect them to be altruistic. We don't even think about them running a business, but I always thought, you know, you go to medical school, well, really it was chiropractic school, eye doctor, dentist, whatever, you go to all this training and then they like graduate you and like, good luck, have fun running your business. And
0: it's, it's- yeah. And they're not given any, you know, in midwifery school, we didn't have one single class about, um, business bookkeeping, how to run a and how to, you know, a profit and loss statement, what that even was like, what the importance of key performance indicators are, or, you know, yeah. how to, how to track really any of the aspects of our business. So I, it doesn't make, it doesn't surprise me that physicians don't that you know they're learning this on the job as they go. All physicians mm-hmm. pretty much are. I mean, unless they had some sort of business experience before medical school, which most don't.
1: Yeah, interesting. Okay, so yeah, go ahead and indulge us with the the transition from in work network to out of network to cash pay. What would that look like, and how would that so? Affect her?
0: But I want I want to also touch back on your question about like what is birth cost, and also about like why don't physicians or midwives just yeah. do cash pay? And I think that I my practice area is in and around New York city and we do have cash paying physicians and, you know, that a lot of celebrities use. And so that does exist. And um, we do also have, you know, there's, there's different tiers and um, kind of a different level of service and almost like a concierge type of experience to those cash paying physicians and those cash paying groups um, in and around our area. Well, you and think so- about
1: like um, the plastic surgery, how how different their offices look and how they treat their clients, and it is more like a concierge, a, a high
0: experience, high touch environment. If, but that's because it's all cash pay. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So then, when you come into, you know, in Manhattan, there's probably a handful of cash pay physicians. I want to say there's maybe five or six, um, and when you go to their offices. Um, it's, they look like plastic surgeon or cosmetic dentist offices. You know, they look like hotels. They're really, Mm -hmm. um, luxurious and very comfortable, but that's kind of, that's part of the whole birth experience is that. That's part of it too. So yeah. then, with, what does birth cost? I mean, it could—you know—you could fly your own private physician to your own private island in the Caribbean too. So you know, it's like,
1: yes, what does that cost? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. But I mean, I mean, well, I don't know. We got a bill. This is kind of off topic a little bit, but we got a bill for our son's 13-day uh, stay in a in, um, an ICU, and it was a bazillion dollars. But then I thought, you know what? I wonder what this cost. So I divided the bill by how many days he was there and then divided like a room cost. I run a hotel too. So I need room costs. And then how many, how many nurses had to be on duty? How many patients were on the floor? What I expected my doctors to be making. I'm like, I don't want my doctor surgeon to be making anything less than $250 an hour. Like that's not, that's not fair. He's working on my son, right? I did all this math. And when it came down to it, it pretty much Like I was like, oh, there's like four or $5,000 left of this bill that I can't account for. But it made sense that it is expensive to run a a thing like that. But me paying it out of pocket would have destroyed us financially. So thank goodness for insurance. But a birth isn't like that. A birth, a non-complicated birth doesn't require 14 days in the ICU. It doesn't require round the clock medical care. So
0: yeah, what should it cost? (laughs) Yeah. So I think that like it, you know, you're so there's there's kind of a double standard in terms of hospital. So you bring up like a really really important good point also, which is what what the hospital makes and then what the provider makes, and they're two different things. Mm. And um, you know, hospitals are still making pretty good money in OB, but providers aren't. And actually, there's kind of a, a belief in the medical community that OB along with radiology and along with anesthesia, along with the ER and along with oncology are like one of the areas in the hospital that are actually still making money and not losing money. Mm-hmm. So when patients come in and they go to med surge floors or they go to like a pulmonary, like a, a lung floor or a cardiac floor, those areas, those, um, because reimbursements are so down in those fields also, those parts of the hospital are actually areas where the hospital's losing money. But in OB... The hospital is actually still making money in OB, so I think hospital stays. I mean, there are, believe it or not, there are actually out-of-network hospitals too. So an out-of-network hospital stay can run you like fifty thousand dollars a night, and whether or not your insurance will actually pay that, which is a whole nother topic too. I mean, this topic could go on forever and ever. But um, and then in-network, it it usually ends up being maybe more around like twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars a night. But the the hospital will oftentimes do what's called a super bill. So they'll bill the insurance like it's like this weird game that insurance the insurance the insurance will play with um, doctors and hospitals or care facilities where if you come to me, and let's say you're dehydrated, and you come into my office, and you need an IV because you have hyperemesis gravidarum. You have the you have the excessive nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, and so you're going to come and get an IV, IV hydration in my office. The actual bag of IV is like $15, and the actual tubing is like $6, and for me to pay a nurse to administer, you know, the nurse makes you know, anywhere between $30 to $60 an hour, depending on your location. And so that whole process should maybe cost because it's an hour of the nurse's time and then all of the supplies, and you got to make a little bit of money. 20, 30% markup is pretty standard in most Mm -hmm. industries. It should cost maybe 125 or $150. But in order to get the insurance to pay the $150, we do what's called a super bill. So we send the insurance company a bill for $700. And then we fight, we go back and forth and we fight with them about how much they're going to pay. And then they, they, we, they end up paying us $80. So it's, it's this, that's the thing about bills Mm. in in medicine is that they're usually super bills. And and maybe you've heard of that too. If you go to an acupuncturist or a chiropractor and they're like, well, they're like, pay, you know, um, I'm going to give you a super bill and you submit that to your insurance. And then your insurance will pay me you know, X, Y, and Z. So it's kind of this like weird guessing yeah. game that we're it's always. So, it feels God. so unfair and dishonest. Well, and unnecessary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in what other industry is, does it work like that? Like when you go to the grocery store and you want to buy, mm-hmm. let's say a non-food item, you know, you want to buy some shampoo and the shampoo is $9. You pay $9 and that's it. You don't go to the cashier and you're like, well, you said $9, but I really want to pay $2. And then the cashier yeah. is like, you want to pay $2? Well, how about seven? You know, it's like, yeah. you don't go through the, no. Well, can you imagine time
1: wasted? Can you imagine building a house this way too? You're like, I need a house and, and
0: oh my gosh. Yeah. No, bad idea. Bad idea. Yeah, exactly. So all of that back and forth. And then, you know, even past that, even behind that there's um, they don't pay because your name is you know, Sarah Smith, but because I didn't send the bill in with Sarah B. Smith, and that's the name that's on your um, insurance Ew. card, they're going to deny me the, they're going to deny the claim that I submitted. And then we have to go through this whole process of, you know, so the the physicians and the midwives have to employ billers to work on this end. And then the insurance companies having to pay billers to, to negate the bills that we're sending them. I mean, it's just a lot of unnecessary, Um, redundancies and back and forth that's just costing everybody and including, um, and the patients and the physicians and midwives are the ones who are suffering the most. (laughs) And the insurance companies are the ones who are benefiting, unfortunately. There
1: there are no in-betweens. There's the insurance company playing this game or there's cash pay. I mean, there are people that can afford cash pay and great, but for most people, they can't afford cash pay. They have to have an insurance involvement, right? right? So then- it's just driving up their premiums, getting them
0: less care. Is there any medium? So there are a few, very few self-funded plans. So that is something that's starting to catch a little bit more momentum. Um, And I've seen that a lot with churches and religious organizations where um, also sometimes like firefighters or um, any civil service like cops, they will have a self-funded plan. So the, there'll be a group that will actually, instead of paying money to an insurance company, they'll pay money into a plan and then they'll they'll withdraw money from the plan um, hmm. for the, the services that they need. So it's kind of like they're making, the group is making their own insurance company. A lot of times though, these self-funded plans are run through one of the major five insurance companies like Cigna, Aetna, United, um, Blue Cross Blue Shield. Hmm. So it seems like the the, um, fox is in the hen house a little bit. Yeah, absolutely, totally. Um, But I think that, you know, we've had so many disruptions in so many industries and and you being in film, you know, film is an industry that was totally disrupted. And, you know, look what happened with Blockbuster to Netflix to, you know, GME to AMC. Bring on the
1: disruption. (laughs) Okay. And you are a disruptor. I hope so. I hope so. So. Wow, you are a visionary. So so you advise people to get out of network. What
0: does so, out of network mean? Yeah, so I I definitely, so two things. It, it works for both ways. So it definitely works for, um, so if you have the choice as a consumer, as a patient to have an out-of-network or in-network plan, choose your out-of-network plan. So a lot of times it's not that much more money in a premium monthly. Um, and- It will give you the option to access many more physicians, you know, especially in my area, in the New York city area, you know, a lot of times when, um, you know, my my mom's a little bit older, you know, she's getting into her more senior years and she goes to a lot of doctors and a lot of, you know, nurse practitioners, a lot of healthcare providers, and most of them are out of network and it's kind of seen in our, it's starting to become seen in our area more as that's kind of the. the the best of the best, the more prestigious the physicians and providers who can actually um, kind of warrant being out of network, like charging a little bit more. um, Mm -hmm. It's kind of seen as a a good thing. Um, So so consumers can have the option to choose, a lot of times, choose an out-of-network plan when they're picking one with with their employer or on a healthcare exchange. And not being afraid to exercise their out-of-network portion because sometimes it's not as expensive as they think they are. So if you call your insurance company, your insurance company does not want you to go out of network because an out-of-network reimbursement for the doctor or the midwife or the provider is much higher for the insurance company. And it's not necessarily that much higher for the patient um, himself or herself.
1: So are they asking the patient to
0: make up the, because I always thought when you went out of network, then you had to kind of make up the difference, but no. Yeah. So it doesn't always work that way because it depends on how your plan works. And um, there's a lot of different, and and it's kind of like the way that finance, People talk sometimes. I think they kind of throw all these terms at you, and um, you know what this means and that means, and you're you're just like, I'm just trying to plan for my retirement, and I don't understand all these terms. And do I want an annuity or do I want a 401k or do yeah. I want a pension? I'm not sure. And I think insurance does the same thing when it comes to they kind of thrive on keeping patients in the dark um, there's an in-network and an out-of-network portion to every plan that has both. So Mm. there's an in-network deductible and there's an out-of-network deductible. And then there's an in-network coinsurance and there's an out-of-network coinsurance, meaning that if you, um, your insurance will pay 80% or 90% of the provider's bill and you're left to pay 10%. But a lot of times it's a super bill, so if you go back to my IV example, mm-hmm. I'm putting out a $700 bill. I'm hoping to get 150 dollars. If insurance is going to pay 80 percent of my $700 bill, then the patient is left with a zero balance sometimes.
1: Mm. And we'll let that sink in for a minute. So <laughs> sometimes it's, it's like those car, those car inclusion places that they're like, what's your deductible? And you tell them and they're like, okay, so we'll charge you, th-
0: we'll charge your insurance company this. And then you don't actually have to pay your deductible. It's, it's exactly the same thing. Okay. So, um, and it's done legally. So the way that I just described it, it kind of sounds a little, it could sound like potentially illegal. I don't want to get myself No, it, into No, trouble. it doesn't sound
1: like that. It doesn't sound, you didn't but, think it um, sound like you, but, that, but it, that's, I've seen that in action. I didn't know, understand. I didn't understand what was going on behind the
0: scenes, but I have seen that happen. So what, what, what we do, so we work in, I work in an out of network practice now, and, um, we have a cash paying portion also, um, for, um, for, for what we do in birth and the way that, so what I would really encourage women specifically to do is that if you, to not one, not be afraid of of out-of-network providers and two, to not rely on everything that your insurance says about going out of network, but to talk to the provider themselves. So, One of the things that we have in the state of New Jersey is we have, um, we actually have an act. It's called the um, Accountability and um, um, Portability Protection Act for patients specifically, so that they're not allowed to be charged out of network without their consent. And also, they're not allowed to get what's called a surprise bill. And Mm. a lot of other states have the same, have different names for the same exact thing. Um, and so most likely in your state, probably in Utah, probably in, in many states, there's some sort of bill that protects patients from surprise bills. And so when you come to your provider's office for the first time, they have to disclose to you um, what your fees are going to be up front. And for us, it's pretty easy because we are we can tell patients you're getting this global charge. So this is now back to the global charge that's actually kind of working to our advantage now and the patient's advantage because we're going to be like, we know what the global charge is going to be. Yeah, that's good. And so we're able to tell you upfront how much a pregnancy and how much a birth is going to be, whether you have a C-section, whether you come every single day for your whole pregnancy, because global charge is global charge, mm-hmm. or whether you, you come three times in your pregnancy because you're, you know, you're out of town or you, know, you, um, you, know, you, you, you transferred or you had your care somewhere else.
1: So I, I've got, a, I've got a question. I've heard this come up several times in just the community needed to do, like, if you go to the hospital, they're not giving you the care you want it's, and you're in labor and they're pushing you to things, you, you know, you can sign out AMA against medical advice. And I've heard people say, well, do it before the birth because they don't get paid a dime unless you actually give birth there. And so you can just pick up and move to another hospital, another provider, if they're not,
0: if you don't like how your birth is going. Is that true? No. So that's totally not true because any encounter can be billed for. Okay. So when you have FaceTime, even if you just have FaceTime with the nurse, that can be billed for. Okay. And then if you're seeing, I mean, if you're coming in and th- then you're saying leave AMA before, you know, you're probably seen by a physician or a midwife, someone who is a billing uh, a billing provider, someone who's M- who has an MPI that can actually be billable. And then- they're gonna bill for whatever they whatever encounter they had for you. And what's interesting about obstetrics specifically is that the triage area is billed as an can be billed as an emergency room. I mean this this is a totally separate topic, but so if you come in, let's say you're coming in and you're like, I think my water broke. And maybe it broke, let's say it really broke, but you're gonna leave and go deliver somewhere else. So when the midwife checks you and sees oh yeah, your water broke. That encounter that you had with the midwife is, is, can be billed as an emergency visit, emergency mm-hmm. room visit,
1: mm-hmm.
0: even though you I, didn't give birth it's there. Just,
1: it just feels like it's so overwhelming to understand how this works that, I mean, so you're saying now you could get double billed. Could the insurance ever come back to you and say, well, you moved hospitals, so we're not gonna pay one. You have to pay one. Like I don't, so many people are just so afraid of getting in, in arguments with their insurance company that they end up with subpar care.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's another benefit to going to an out-of-network provider because an out-of-network provider will actually have the time and the resources to sit down and talk to you and explain all of those things to you. But to go back to your point about double billing, you're not actually getting double billed because you're having a rule out rupture of membranes in one hospital, and then you're delivering in another hospital. Got it. Okay. Okay. So what you can't do, it's, and this is like a totally another complicated side topic, but if you come in in labor and you, and the provider says, okay, your water's broken, your your water ruptured, and then you deliver there, they actually then can't bill for that rule out labor rupture um, experience, that um, encounter, because it's It's part part of your delivery. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's not really any incentive for them to kind of keep you or push you away. Cause they're going to get paid either way. Okay. Well, that's good to
1: know. I cannot believe how fast I never thought it would be so fascinating to talk about insurance, but <laughs> I just, okay, wait, one last point though. I don't want, I want to make sure this gets lots of time, sh- 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 uh, time in the sun, but you encourage pr- physicians to go from, if they're in, in network to venture out and to do out Absolutely. of network, Yes, definitely. And then you try to move them to cash pay eventually, or if that works for their practice and their
0: most of the time when a physician goes to it's very hard to go from out of network to cash pay. So you have to kind of have almost a celebrity status. Got it. Um and so you'll see some of those OB, you'll see some of those obs. There's one in um the Kardashians. Um I think her name is Dr. Thea uh, um the Kardashians OB. She's cash pay only. Um, mm-hmm. because she has such a celebrity status and such a celebrity following and a YouTube channel and all these all these different things. If you want her to deliver you, I don't even know how much it is. It, I, I'm assuming it's in the, in the <laughs> six digit in the <laughs> six-digit range. But um most of the time when a physician goes from in-network to out-of-network, they're going to be very comfortable in the out-of-network model. They're going to be able to um not have to see patients in a factory setting. They're going to be able to slow down, they're going to be able to um kind of either hire more physicians, group them up, like I said, into pods or not take as many patients because um, they're gonna be getting reimbursed so much more that it's gonna just, they're gonna be doing the same, they're gonna be doing so much less work, but making the same amount of money. And um, there's a there's a whole, I have a whole thing on my website about how to do that. And obviously I do consulting for how to take a physician from in network to out of network. Um, and it's much, much, much easier than most physicians think. And I really want to encourage OBs to do that because especially OBs that have their own private practice that aren't part of a hospital practice um, or aren't already part of what's called a collective bargaining um group. Um, um and some physicians will do this. Well, they'll they'll pair up with other physicians and they'll they'll go into a collective bargaining agreement with um. Different insurers, and I think that's just the worst thing for physicians to do. I think that just like, you know, takes their control away from their practice, takes control away from what they can actually do in their own with their own mm-hmm. um, with their own business. And physicians and midwives both should really go out of network. So I'm happy to talk to anyone and give any advice. Yeah, and- <laughs> that leads me right into my next thing. Tell us
1: um, where they can tell us your website and all of the different ways people get, can get in a hold of you.
0: Yeah, so my website is just my name, um, KristenMallon.com. and it's Kristen with two eyes, And um, all of my socials on there, all of the ways to contact me is on the website. It's really the best place to go. And, um, and I'm happy to kind of continue the conversation further. Yeah, this has been
1: fascinating. Thank you so much for kind of opening the <laughs> opening the curtain on all of this. I mean, you're right; we could do a series of ten podcasts just diving into this. And yeah, absolutely. And, There's uh, so much to say. And I hope that, um, yeah, as a visionary and as a, a mover and shaker, that what we've talked about today, our, uh, our 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 daughters will listen and be like, "Wow, mom, you what? What was the system like back then? That's so archaic."
0: Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. So don't be afraid of going out of network if you're a, um, a patient or a provider. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Please visit us at birthcircle.com. Join our Facebook groups or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience.